Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Major Maddie Jewell grew up in the hinterland of Byron Bay and after joining the Army at the age of 17, served on military and peacekeeping operations around the world. During her 15-year military career, Maddie earned eight war medals, completed the physically demanding Navy Divers course, served on operations with the elite American Navy SEALs, boarded smuggler ships in the Arabian Gulf and eventually was posted as a peacekeeper with the United Nations in Syria and Lebanon under extraordinary circumstances. Maddie has been featured on the ABC's Australian Story and is a best-selling author. Among her many honorary roles, Maddie is a founding ambassador for Project Thankful, which is a movement partnered with the United Nations to help empower women and children globally. Maddie is now an international keynote speaker and shares her lessons on leadership from her experience in the military and also her experience of two pretty high-energy kids. The conversation with Maddie is real, raw and honest. Sit back and enjoy this episode with Martina Jewell. Maddie, welcome to the studio. Thanks very much for having me, Ali. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, look, there's so many kind of jumping off points that I want to um, dive into and stories that I want to kind of unpack with you. You are one of the most decorated women in Australian military history and there's a, there's a complete story and a career in there that uh, we're going to dive into. You also have two beautiful daughters, uh, Sierra Four and Kaya Kaya. Kaya, Kaya, yeah, too. Kaya. I want to get that right. Um, what parts of your leadership experience got you ready for parenting of a four and a two-year-old beautiful girl? <laughs> uh, Ali, probably no. <laughs> probably none of my leadership training is helping um, as a mum. <laughs> and I often joke about how commanding 500 soldiers is easier. <laughs> It's like a walk in the park compared to managing and wrangling uh, two toddlers, (laughs) a two and a four-year-old. And uh, often I say to my girls, you know, people used to listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) This is how it used to roll. This is how it used to roll, whereas you two, and I think most mums out there would agree that, you know, yeah, your own family, (laughs) it doesn't matter what you do uh, at work or in different capacities in your life, that uh, your family are probably the most difficult to get to listen at times. I can um, just picture you writing the note for the kitchen table going, I'm going back to barracks, you guys can sort (laughs) this. <laughs> I'm heading back to the army. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I'm very blessed. I'm, I, you know, I feel so privileged to be a mum. And for me, it was a difficult journey. Um, having been injured on the battlefield in the Middle East, I had uh, uh, a number of internal injuries. Uh, there were five vertebrae that I had fractured or crushed. I ruptured my diaphragm. I had a heap of internal injuries, and and we did IVF for many years unsuccessfully. And so it was a long journey to have children. So. Um, when we found out that I'd fallen pregnant naturally, virtually after we'd sort of given up hope of having our own children, which <laughs> seems to be the process, mm. um, you know, it was such a blessing that, you know, these two little miracles um, that are now like, I think, I feel like I'm raising nudist hippies <laughs> yeah, <at home>. right. <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep clothing on those two. Um, when yeah, you live you that know. close to Byron, it's probably... <laughs> We're at the beach, okay. so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. Mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, every day I feel very 
thankful and blessed to be a mum, but also very challenged. And they have created a whole new purpose and role and challenges for me and for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. And I can totally imagine that you think, you know, I've got this people thing nailed and then uh, you get challenged <laughs> with a yeah. four and a two-year-old that comes at, as you say, they're... Um, and, you know, the, the process of going through IVF and, and getting to that family has been a big, big mm, one that's for right. you as well. Exactly. I think when you have so many pregnancies and then you lose, you have miscarriages and you lose children along the way that, um, you know, it just makes that even more special when you find out that you've, you have I've got these little miracles that were against the odds. You know, I was told that it would be less than one in 5,000 chance of falling pregnant naturally. And now we've done that twice, so <laughs> I think we've got the recipe now. <laughs> we've got that. We've we're okay. The odds. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got these two beautiful girls. Um, it you know it really is a miracle that I'm a mum. What was that moment like when you? Because um, it's not just the finding out you're pregnant, because that had happened in the past mm. and and had been unsuccessful. So was was there a particular moment um, where you went, okay, this pregnancy is going to be sustainable? This is yeah, yeah, there was. Um, I had been for weeks of, you know, for months actually sort of contacting the IVF clinic saying that if I didn't know better, I would say that I was pregnant, that I had all the pregnancy symptoms under the sun, I, you know, every single one of them you could tick off. And they kept saying, oh, that's just not possible, Maddie. So, you know, um, we're waiting for me to cycle again so that we could um, do another IVF round, hopefully. And when we found out that I was pregnant with Sierra, I was already 13 weeks pregnant. Like there was a baby on the screen oh. <laughs> and they did an ultrasound. And and so for me, at least I got through that first trimester, which was, you know, the biggest danger period that we'd had of, you know, having all those miscarriages um, previously. So in some ways it was just a relief of like, well, we've, we're this far in, she's survived so far, she's defied the odds, she's perfectly healthy. And um, I think... At no stage during that, that pregnancy did I actually have that fear that I'd had previously of, is this one going to last? Yeah, right. That's interesting. Yeah, which mm-hmm. was a shift, yeah, and I've never thought about that prior to right now. <laughs> that, yeah, right. That, yeah, that it just, you know, just felt right, well, this is just, this is the one. This yeah, is happening. This is it. Where are you? happening. We'll go and get the, the baby stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she was a very difficult baby. <laughs> we had um, all sorts of problems with her, with chronic reflux. She was a baby that was very small. She was only four pounds ten when she was born. She was a tiny little baby and, uh, you know, would, would feed um, uh, every two to four hours, night and day, just constantly trying to get weight on her and would unfortunately would vomit after every feed and it was, you know, a very difficult process, very tiring. We, we called it the sleep deprivation Olympics <laughs> that we are still in. Right. <laughs> yeah. As a four-year-old. Um, so she was very challenging and with my work at that stage and I think given all the things I'd done previously, you know, I just thought I will be this super mum like lots of mums of our generation think we are. And I just continued on with life. I, you know, I spoke at 70-odd events, not only in Australia but around the world. I was on the Prime Minister's Advisory Council. I was on the Anzac Centenary Commission with Bob Hawke and Malcolm Fraser and the National Mental Health Board and all of these things. And so, you know, Sierra did over 100 flights with me in that first year while I was breastfeeding. And, uh, and I just thought I can just keep doing all of these things that I was doing plus have this baby that doesn't sleep. And I was just functioning off... So, so little sleep myself, but somehow I just managed to push through. And I look back now, I think, you know, what was I trying to prove to myself or to others? Or, um, and it was a really special bonding period, but, you know, really hard work. And, 
And if I did that time again, I'd probably you know, take some of that pressure that, I, that only I myself had put on myself to keep doing those roles. And you're right. I think it's sometimes that realisation of going, well, no one else is demanding this. I'm the one that's put this in the calendar. <laughs> that's <laughs> right, yeah. Getting to that point yeah. of going, which means, therefore, I could choose differently. But uh, when, you, when you're caught up in that grind, yeah. it's just, okay, think- next flight, next... Exactly. Five minutes of sleep. <laughs> yeah. And, and get up and go again. And ironically for Sierra, the only time that she did sleep was on planes. And I thought this is a very oh, expensive gosh. routine to be getting this child into. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just pop down to Melbourne, turn around, come back again. Just to get some sleep. <laughs> but uh, I think um, I had some great advice from um, Quinton Bryce, who uh, was the Governor General at the time. And she said to me, Maddie, you know, women of your generation, you, you can have everything, but just not necessarily all at the same time. And I think that was really, you know, powerful words of advice that, yeah, we, we almost put this expectation on ourselves that we can and must have everything. We've got, we've got our education, we've got our careers, we've got children, we've got family, but we're just trying to find that juggle of how we fit all that together. And it's about, for me, was just kind of giving myself permission to step down from a few things and find that better balance, you know, for everyone. So I could be the best mum and the best I could, you know, with my work and the different roles and ambassador roles that I was doing as well. And realising, I think, the, the time piece that stretch, that we can stretch time, that there is time, that there's enough time, that it doesn't have to be just because there's opportunities now doesn't mean those opportunities will disappear. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think that's what I take away from, like, hearing that as well is actually, okay, step down, this is my season, this is what I'm, yeah. I'm doing right now and those other things may or may not come that's down right. the path. Yeah. But if they do, then something else will. Absolutely. I think we feel that pressure to say yes and get in and dive in and do things, but there's times where we actually have to say, well, what's best for me and for my family right now? And I don't have to achieve everything I want to achieve in life this year. I've hopefully got plenty of years ahead of me and I can just keep, you know, just prioritising what I want and but being comfortable and happy with that about saying no to things. And I think that's something that I've had to learn along the way. I'm still not particularly good at saying no uh, and letting those opportunities go and, and, you know, giving it back to the universe and saying, well, if it's meant to be, it'll come around again. Yeah, and if not, someone else if will not, take care of it. someone else will, you know, have that opportunity and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you spoke a little bit about the hardship of getting pregnancy and then the difficulty of, of this beautiful child but then, you know, working and doing it all. But you've done hard stuff in the past as well. Um, so you left school and went into military um, at quite a young age. Yeah, I was what 17. Was the, what was yeah. the decision behind that? Why, why go into the military? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think from having grown up in this region, so I grew up in the hinterland of Byron Bay, sort of about 20 minutes from Byron, a little town called Alstonville, which was a very small community. And I was young for year 12, 17 when I finished year 12. And... I had played a lot of sport at high level. I'd sort of represented Australia to China when I was 16, which was a huge influence on my life. I think from from an Aussie kid growing up regionally in the beaches of Australia to go over to China, it was the first time I'd ever seen poverty firsthand. And we spent a month touring around Shanghai and Beijing. And back then, you know, those cities were so heavily polluted that at night you just could not see the stars at all. You could, you know, could see a bit of a glow from the moon but stars um, you could not see. And, and the, the opponents, the Chinese kids, kept asking me, you know, had I ever seen stars before? Because it was something that I only read about in textbooks. Wow. And, and I found that quite profound. That of like, yeah, and I think 
that was the first time in my life that I felt very fortunate to be an Australian, that I was like, wow, that's something that I've never really thought of before and that, yeah, that I had daily taken for granted, that the moon, the stars, and and it made me think more along those, um, the cultural aspects. And I guess I, I, in a career sense, that I wanted to pursue a career that you know, had that humanitarian aid aspect, that I wanted to go and explore other countries and their cultures and particularly help those people who had been disadvantaged that hadn't had the privileged upbringing that, I had taken for granted up until that point in my life. So that was a big driving force. And then I think um, added to that was a sort of a whole list of things that I wanted in a career. I sort of came back and sat down and said, Rock, you know, I want to work in team environments. You know, I love the team sports. always found myself... What uh, sport were you doing? Like, what did you... Um, volleyball was my main sport. I also yeah. did horse riding. There was 10 sports that I played at sort of state level. Right. <laughs> so I had a crack at anything. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, um, I was hardly ever at school. I was always off flag sport. Oh, I um, love it. It reminds me of my son. So my son's nine and uh, we were watching the Rio Olympics last year and he goes, Mum, I'm going to do running and swimming and play rugby. <laughs> and I'm like, mate, you can be the first. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, Give it a go. Awesome. There, might be a, there might be a new sport that he creates. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, so sport was just a huge passion. So I wanted to do something that was physically challenging as well as sort of mentally using. I was quite good at academics as well. I wanted to go to university and, and study and, you know, that humanitarian aid aspect. And I'd also, as the, as the youngest child in my family, had seen my parents struggle financially to put my older brother through university. He did architecture, which is quite a long degree. And I saw that my mum's entire paycheck would just go into my brother's bank account to, to support him through university. And at the end of all that, I you know, sort of looked at that list and I sort of stumbled across the Australian Defence Force Academy, ADFA, and I thought, great, that ticks all of those boxes. And at the age of 17, I can go off, do my university studies, and I'll no longer be that financial burden on my parents. That at 17, I'll be fully independent financially and, uh, and go and pursue this career. So much to my parents' dismay when I announced what that. What did they say when that's you where went, I was this heading. is what I'm going to do? Well, they were quite supportive. I also had scholarships um, on offer in the US for volleyball where I could go into university and volleyball. And um, it's sort of ironic, but my parents were saying, you know, they were you know, really not a bit against sort of going into professional sport that, you know, if I was injured or didn't, you know, pursue that career, sort of start again if an injury sets you back. And they also knew that I was a personality type, that I was very determined. And if they had sort of not supported or tried to sort of block that decision that I would probably just dig my heels in, <laughs> that would make me even more determined. <laughs> You'd to be go calling and do them that. from the US going, <laughs> <laughs> this is where I am. This is what I've done. Um, and I remember, you know, quite clearly my parents saying, and, you know, and as a, as a woman in the military, it's not like you're ever going to, you know, be in a combat situation, you know, famous last words from mum and dad. So five overseas missions later in war zones and, uh, you know, life-threatening situations, I think they were probably regretting yeah, uh, those words that they'd <laughs> yeah. said. But so they were quite supportive and could see that this would be a great stepping stone to go on and do something else. And uh, it was with their blessing that, you know, they, they actually signed off at 17. I had to have a guardian actually sign the paperwork for the Defence Force for me to head off and uh, start my university studies and train to be an officer in the army. Did that determination, stubbornness, where did that come from? Did that come from your parents? Is that part of my grandmother. Your grandmother. <laughs> yeah, you can see the lineage. Yes. Uh, my grandmother was very determined. She sort of had, we used to call it the Stanfield stubbornness, my maiden name Stanfield. And uh, she was 94, still living at home independently, refusing to go into a nursing home. And um, she did spend the last four years of her life in a nursing home, which she absolutely loved, you know, all the activities they did. And um, and she did admit uh, before passing that, you know, that 
she wished she had have come earlier to the home, that it gave her a whole new lease on life. But it was that just fierce independence of, no, I can do this, I can stay in my own home. And uh, she'd make the bus driver in Lennox drive into her cul-de-sac and help her with the groceries <laughs> into her home. So um, she was an amazing woman that, you know, had such strength and resilience. She'd been through uh, World War II. My grandfather volunteered for World War II and so she was left at home with three young children and they owned the general store to run. And so, you know, having having seen all that, she was probably the one person who really vocalised um, in, that she was not supporting me join the military and, that she, and she really wished that I couldn't. She was saying, you know, you have so many other options. Why would you choose to do this? And she had, had lost brothers in the war and my grandfather had come home very sick with malaria for the rest of his life after that war. So my grandmother's perspective on that of joining the military was, was, you know, very different from my eyes or the reasons why I was joining. Yeah, right. So taking that... Uh that determination, that stubbornness, and and I guess the physical caliber as well into um, your military career. You you then went up and up through the ranks, and um, and the I guess the exposure to a whole range of different areas within that career. Um, and I know after um, September eleven that uh, that you were overseas. Yeah, yeah, so I was serving on a navy ship at that time. HMAS Canimbla, which was one of our amphibious warfare ships. So um, we were deployed straight after September 11th across to the Middle East. We were working in the North Arabian Gulf and we actually had the American Navy SEALs uh, embarked on board us. We were boarding smuggler ships in the North Arabian Gulf. And uh, that was a very challenging role for me because I, I was 23. I had just been promoted to captain and... I had embarked on the ship as second in command of the army department, but only two weeks into that new role, uh, my boss, uh, an army major, he, he was ill, had to leave the ship and he never returned. And so I was promoted second time in only two weeks. So talk about being thrown in the deep end. Right, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and now responsible for coordinating all the amphibious offloads of... What was that like for you? Is there a part of you going, OK, this is now just my role? Or is there a part of you going, um, surely there's someone else here that... <laughs> yeah, it was sort of most like, have they forgotten that <laughs> I'm just a brand new captain now, I'm an acting major, I've kind of jumped 10 years of seniority, there should be someone here who's got a decade's more experience than what I have. Um, but there was also just a mindset of you just, you needed to just jump in, um, you didn't have a choice, you know, you're being thrown in the deep end, just get on with it. And fortunately, I had amazing support around me. My senior soldiers, my warrant officer and my sergeants and corporals were, were brilliant, brilliant guys that really did support me. They almost sort of felt sorry for me that I'd been put in this role. And I guess on, layered on top of that was that this was the first amphibious platform we'd had since World War II. So we had no manuals or um, operating procedures of how we did this. So we're having to make it up as we went. So... On the way to the Middle East, you know, I was sort of plagiarising how the Americans and the UK operated, but we had a very different ship and we had to work it out ourselves of how we would do these operations. We hadn't worked with the with the SEALs before. And so, again, having to come up with new ways of operating and there's, there's no chance of not succeeding. It's like, you know, you're in a war zone. People's lives are on the line. You don't have an opportunity to say, this is beyond my skill set. Um, 
I want to leave and go home. Yeah, can we just have a week of induction while I figure this out? Yeah, or can we, we just, yeah, can we just, you know, yeah, can, <laughs> can I do a training course yeah, before right. I do this? Or, uh, and, you know, you're in. you're in and you have to, you have to somehow make it work. You have to think outside the box, adapt, succeed, draw on all the skills of the people around you and great learning for me as a young leader, you know, at 23, to have that responsibility to, to learn the art of delegating, which I found really difficult. Um, I'm one of those people that kind of would like to just do it myself, make sure it's done right. And But when you have, you know, up to a thousand people moving, 10 helicopters, 10 watercraft, an enemy running interference, all the gear, the, the tanks, the army vehicles and equipment that you're trying to get off multiple ships simultaneously, get them across a beach and potentially into enemy terrain. Like when you're running all those things yourself, you, you just can't physically do it on, on your own. So I was forced to learn to empower people and actually let them carry out the vision I had in mind. So, you know, empowerment I found is a really crucial skill in leadership to help me succeed in those environments. But, you know, it was tough. And I think at the time you just, I didn't really think too much of it because I didn't have time to think. It was just get on, get it done, somehow make a plan and make it work. It's only in hindsight and years later, I look back and think, wow, that was a lot of responsibility to put on a 23-year-old's shoulders, but what a great opportunity, what an amazing challenge and a gift that I had at that point to step up in that role and and thankfully I had the courage to do it and the great support to help me succeed in those environments. Was there any moments that kind of surprised you about, um, I guess, your own capability in that leadership space where you kind of look back and go, oh, actually, that worked or that conversation, you know, yeah, yeah kind of really... I think at the time you're still looking forward to the next challenge, the next thing. You don't really kind of sit and reward yourself or think, wow, that turned out well. <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's do that again tomorrow. But, um, yeah, I imagine the intensity yeah, of but it. Yeah, but the same yeah. is sort of also wanting to make sure you reward your team, you actually keep your team motivated. And I think as a leader in those environments, my focus was so much on my people rather than myself that it's really only in hindsight that I've looked back and gone, actually, I did a really good job there. I should be really happy with what, how I performed in a very difficult, challenging, changing environment where you just can't prepare for that stuff. You have to actually learn on the go and just just get in, do your best, you know, take the pressure off. Just you can only ever ask the best from yourself and from others. And if you've given your best and you've given it all and you've tried, well, then no one can ask more from you from that. On top of all of um, all the moving parts that were happening, you were also... Um the the person in leadership role in a very male dominated environment. So as a female in the leadership space, was that um, and I imagine that was unusual. Um, mm. Even now, in our yeah. you know, we we talk about um, more and more women stepping into leadership roles, but it's it's also, it's very unusual in in our defence um, and in the military environment. Was that um, at the forefront, or was that part of your experience, or was that just not even really an issue? It was just you were you were in that role and, and gender wasn't even part of that that challenge. Yeah, look, I think um, probably on two aspects, Ali. I think um, I was very fortunate that the women that had gone before me in the Defence Force, the generations before, which was um, a very different environment to what I stepped into, where they had enormous challenges. You know, for a long time, women weren't even allowed to carry weapons. I never had that experience in my career. From day one, I was treated as an equal to, to my male counterparts. Um, but, you know, it's women who had gone before me and I give so much kudos to them that they, they put enough cracks in those glass ceilings to allow women of my generation to come through and to do a number of firsts for the Defence Force. Um, 
you know, I was very fortunate to be the first woman in the army to to qualify as a navy diver and also to fast rope from helicopters, um, things that you know women hadn't been given those opportunities before, and so I was. I was fortunate I was in that era where I was supported and if you were good enough and you had the skill sets, you were given that opportunity and I felt that support um, to a certain extent, that equality with my, with my peers. But I also was sort of frustrated that, you know, again, in hindsight when I look back, that, you know, my male counterparts would automatically have the respect when they posted into a new job, a new role, a new battalion. They were just, you know, automatically because of the rank or the position they were in, they were, they'd have that respect, whereas I felt that I had to work really hard to earn that respect from my team and simply because of my gender. And at the time, I found that very frustrating. I thought that was really unfair. It's like I've got the same, same skill sets of, of, my, of my male counterparts, but I'm having to work really hard, much harder than them, just to be accepted. But I think in hindsight, it was, the, it was a wonderful gift in that respect is something that you earn. You don't just wear it in a job title or rank. And it's a two-way street. Your respect goes up and down. And so as a result, I think I had a much tighter um, relationship with my team. And when you're in environments like the military where you're asking people to put their lives in your hands, literally, they need to trust you to that level um, that they will put their life in your hand willingly, knowing that you will do everything you can to protect them and ensure the entire team succeeds then trust is you know, paramount. It has to be there at that very deep level. And so I think that was kind of a, a gift. But I think, you know, going back to that part of that question of like, you know, difficulties, yes. Uh, and at the time I just accepted that this was just part of my job. Um, I didn't really think too much about it. In the Australian Defence Force, women had been around long enough that it was kind of accepted. But I was placed in roles like my fifth overseas mission where I was on a representation role with the United Nations and I served in Syria for seven months and then in Lebanon for six months. And in both of those countries at my patrol bases, I was not only the only Australian, but also the only woman in those entire patrol regions. And so, you know, I faced culture and gender issues every single day for 13 months. Not on just that from mission. your colleagues, but from... From, from the environment that I was that, in. Yeah. And yeah, and I guess... Um, was some of that confronting? Was very that? confronting. There were times where it was really difficult, um, particularly from my teammates. I had, I had particular countries. I mean, the UN mission I was serving in had had personnel, military personnel from over twenty three different nations. So, you're talking about very diverse culture expectations, and so some of the the men that I was working with, my teammates, had never served with women, women before, and. So they had a very different expectation. I remember my very first patrol in Syria where I was sent out at the Golan Heights. And in Syria, you only worked in two-man patrols. So you would head off in a vehicle out to the base to you and, and with one man. Was, again, I was the only woman. So, um, and you'd be out there for a week at a time with this guy. You'd you know go out for patrols for 12 hours a day in the vehicles, but you would sleep at this base. And I remember that first day he was saying you know, that the normal process was whoever stayed at the base would cook the evening meal for the for their colleague. And he said, but, you know, you're a woman, so you'll cook for me every night. <laughs> of course. And I was Let's like... set those expectations a little bit. Yeah. Clear. I yeah. was like, well, clearly you've never worked with an Aussie woman before because that is not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I expect an evening meal. And he sort of gave me this whole sob story that, you know, his wife and mother had always cooked for him. He didn't know how to cook. And I was, I had to be very hard and set that expectation right at the front of like, well, no, there's the internet, there's the kitchen, you've got the next 12 hours to work out how you're mm. going to produce me a meal tonight. This is the moment YouTube this is... was created for, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. <laughs> um, so it was very hard sort of working with some of those guys that, you know, just was so foreign to them and also for their wives. I mean, part of the problem was mm. I faced was with the wives back in Damascus. Um, they were very threatened that here I was, and I was probably 20 years younger than this man, um, heading out for a week at a time. And they and they also had never seen women in uniform. And so they were quite challenged that I would be spending a week with their husband on a patrol base. And so having to earn the trust of, of the wives of that force that I was working in, there's a lot of complexities that you sort of had to work around, but challenging times. And then even in Lebanon, even more difficult where it was sort of, um, you know, physically challenged. I was, I was assaulted twice in Lebanon by locals in the population. And, and that was really hard. I mean, it was my first day in Lebanon after spending seven months in Syria that I had two guys on a motorbike attempt to abduct me. I was uh, in civilian attire, I wasn't in uniform. And thankfully, I'd learned a bit of Arabic before I deployed on this mission. And I was able to physically fight myself out of this situation, um, not be captured and taken on the bike. And um, once I'd got enough distance between myself and these two men, I was able to speak to them in Arabic and tell them that I was an officer in the Australian Army. I was working with the United Nations and to, to let me go. Um, and they understood that, responded back to me in Arabic saying, oh, you're United Nations um, and let me go. But, uh, yeah, that was like a welcome to Lebanon. Mm. You're in a very mm, different country gosh, now. Yeah. You're in southern Lebanon. This is Hezbollah country. And... And it was, I felt very vulnerable in that situation because of my appearance, because of um, I have blue eyes. So it wasn't necessarily my blonde hair, but the fact that I have blue eyes that would really stand out to these men is something that's very attractive. And, and even at the patrol base, the first day I patrolled and manned um, the base at Kiam, I had a local man come up and start masturbating through the fence. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in uniform, I'm on a UN base. And uh, so there's a lot of difficulties that I had on a, on a gender level that um, felt more challenging than what my, my male uh, counterparts were Was were, there were a moment with. where you kind of went, okay, the, yeah, this is not safe, this is not kind of, can I put my hand up and, and be deployed somewhere, somewhere else? else? Or like was that ever, did that ever go through your, your thinking? No, it's sort of never an option. I guess you're in a mindset of, no, I'm here to this do a job. job, this is what I'm doing. Mm. I mean, I was even... Um, I had a, a Hezbollah soldier on the first day. They hadn't seen women in uniform. Well, actually, the only women they'd seen in uniform were Israeli soldiers. And so they thought I was an Israeli spy. And unfortunately, in Arabic, the words Israeli and Australian are very sem- similar. You ne- learn to pronounce them, <laughs> articulate very, very clearly. clearly <laughs> that uh, Anna Australi means I'm Australian or Anna Israeli. <laughs> I'm in, from Israel. And so... Um, you know, I had a Hezbollah soldier, you know, level a weapon at me and thought that I was a spy and we had to sort of talk him down. And because we're unarmed in this mission, we're unarmed peacekeepers. So there's this whole vulnerability that you don't normally have in an Australian Defence Force scenario that you're learning new skills on the run to equip yourself in those environments. And um, and I actually felt quite unsupported at times with that gender role. And I had to draw on that, that strength myself where um, my commanders didn't fully understand the extent of the vulnerability that I was in because of my 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 culture and gender in those situations. And I guess for them, they hadn't they hadn't had other female colleagues. To, yeah, to, to sort of go. Actually, this might be different. Yeah, this so. is hard. So, it's again at the time I just you know just got on with it as part of the job. Just just roll with it, work out a way. But again, in hindsight, I think I look back and go actually. That was very challenging. That was really hard. And I did have to draw a lot on my inner strength to get me through those situations, those tough times, 
focus on the purpose and the role that I was there to do and, and just say, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and make sure that other women get this opportunity too. So you touched on um, before your last appointment, deployment, uh, which was in, in the Middle East, um, again working under the banner of the UN. And um, in that experience there was, there was a moment, there was a split second where, where life completely changed for you um, and quite a defining yeah, life-changing moment. What was, um, what was the deployment? What were you doing in the Middle East at the time? So it was a representation role for Australia. So we would send 10 or 11 officers a year over on this mission and we were unarmed peacekeepers. So we're part of this big UN force that was based in Israel, Lebanon and Syria. And our mission was to observe and monitor a peace agreement. And there'd been relative calm in that region for for a number of years, just small conflicts and skirmishes across the border. But our job was to, to monitor the peace the peace in that region and report any violations of the peace agreements that had been set into place by the UN. And this mission had gone on for sort of 60 odd years. It had been a very long, continually uh, operating mission in the Middle East. And unfortunately, given what's happening in the Middle East, I think it will be, it will be needed for a long time to come. But it was the first mission that I had served on where, where we were unarmed. We were in the most threatening environments that I'd ever been placed in in my career, yet taken away that that weapon to be able to defend yourself. And so that was very challenging, being put in these difficult situations. And also the United Nations runs very differently to the Australian Defence Force. There's a lot of things that I had taken for granted in the Australian Defence Force that the UN just didn't operate or have the same technology or equipment or skills and a highly changing, diverse um, group of people that were serving on those missions. When you've got 23 different nations, they're trickle-feeding every month. You've got new people coming, people leaving the mission. And so there's a, there's a great deal of constant change within the, the force itself. And so we were uh, observing the peace agreement. It was my very last patrol before I was due to return back to Australia. I sort of... Um, I only had a couple of weeks left of my entire 13 months with the UN before I was due to return back. And I was the on my second last day of the patrol, that the next day I was due to come off the base, be replaced at the base, and I was going on holidays in Egypt. And um, unfortunately, the Hezbollah created this massive war with the Israelis. They ambushed uh, a Humvee patrol. They killed Israeli soldiers during that attack and they captured two Israeli soldiers took them back into Lebanon and that's what, you know, sparked the entire war. And Was that close by? Yeah, it was only a few kilometres down the border from us. Right. And I was out on patrol in a vehicle at the time and we got a mayday call across the radio to move to the nearest UN base. And in my mind, that was that was the biggest danger that you had, was that if something went wrong, if, if, if a fighting occurred across the border, the biggest danger you had was if you were kind of caught away from a base because UN bases shouldn't be targeted. Uh, it was just actually that period getting back to the base that you would be in the most danger. And thankfully I was able to get the vehicle, get um, my patrol back into the base. We, we shut down at the base. But the history of what was happening in that sort of 10-year period was these small skirmishes that would last for a couple of hours, maybe six hours at the most, and then the fighting would stop and it would take another six months before there would be another event. And in a way, the UN had kind of become complacent and really structured itself to only deal with a 12-hour conflict. And it became very clear in that first 
few hours of the war that this was going to be a very different conflict. It actually went on for 34 days and it was full-scale warfare. So in a split second, we went from monitoring a peace agreement to observing full-scale war happening around us. We had the front line. And we were in the thick of it. We were on the receiving end of what was happening. We had fighter jets bombing, um, attack helicopters, tanks, artillery fire, Katusha rockets from the Hezbollah. Like, it was all happening around us. And our job was to report those violations. And um, Which I kind of, like, that must have felt... um, like limiting and what else you can do. Like when you say report violations, that's that's just kind of going, hey, this is what's happening. Yeah. When all of that fighting's happening. That's right. And when you're used to being in a mindset of actually being part of a fighting force, to actually just sit there as an observer, it's a real vulnerability. If you're sitting here going, well, I've got no impact on what's happening. I'm just like, it's almost like a journalist. I'm just Mm. sitting here reporting what's happening. Um, And so that was really a hard concept to come to. And also the UN headquarters had completely fallen to pieces. We'd had... uh, um, to the extent that for the first five days of the war, we didn't have a functioning kind of headquarters that was the, the chief, deputy chief and operations officer were out of the headquarters. So you're three key people in the in the team sort of supposed to be driving that operation just weren't there to do their jobs. And so there was a lot of chaos happening within the UN force itself. And we were having to take control at key arm. In fact, we'd sort of had suggested that we would create the headquarters, but the chief was able to get back on day five, back into the headquarters and start trying to actually function more effectively as a UN force. So there was just uh, so many failings on the UN systems. You know, we ran out of food on day one. um, So logistics were a massive issue for us. Our communications became, um, uh, you know, incompetent really. And many times our communications, we operated off UHF, VHF radios, but they were jammed by electronic warfare. There was just so many layers of things that just had failed. Um, And from my mindset of an Australian system of where these things just work, you have SOPs in place, these things are functioning. Um, Again, it was thankfully I'd had a number of experiences in my career where I had to just think outside the box, be able to come up with new ways of operating in those environments and very life-threatening situations. So we had survived so many near misses at that base. Uh, that first week of the war, um, a Hezbollah base was only 75 metres from us. It was the closest one to us. And in the first hour of that war, uh, an Israeli fighter jet destroyed that base with a thousand pound bomb, which uh, are massive bombs. They'll destroy five, 10 storey buildings. So I was actually on the roof of that base uh, when that bomb impacted. And it was a sheer miracle that we didn't take casualties at Kiam in that very first hour of the war. Um, when that base went up, it was like we were in an earthquake. It was like the the whole base was shaking from the blast wave itself, huge amounts of shrapnel coming down on top of us, bit of a design flaw of the UN base <laughs> in that there was no overhead protection. So there was right. nothing up there on the roof to protect us, even from the sun, let alone bombs coming in and so the what's shrapnel. What's going through your mind when you're like you're being rained by shrapnel? Yeah. Like what's at that point you just you're just thinking please don't let anything big fall on top of me. And, like, there were just big chunks of concrete with twisted steel star pickets through them, Rio enforcements, um, down to fine pieces of metal shrapnel all raining down on top of us. We're covered in dust. And and it was one of those, it was like we'd, we just won the grand final. The fact that none of us were injured, we kind of all giving each other high fives afterwards mm. <laughs> going... How many on base? Miracle. You, like, how many... 
Um, you'd have four or five UN oh. peacekeepers at a time. But during that war, there was periods that we ended up with 23, 24 people in a bunker that's designed for five, which is a real getting to know you process. Yeah, very quickly. <laughs> While you're getting bombed. Um, and these were uh, Indian and Ghanaian soldiers that had... had uh, uh, got caught in the war and was sort of had been sent to our base at times and, you know, just trying to find enough food to feed all of us because we ran out of food that, you know, first day of the war. Um, you know, just being in this bunker together, just looking at, these, you know, all these faces. But the Indians, um, because I had blonde hair and blue eyes, <laughs> they were like, you know, really happy, smiling, like, excellent. <laughs> we've we've got to the one base. Yeah. Yeah. There's, this, uh, there's a woman here. Yeah. Um, so, so imagine that's quite also surreal. really bonding for a couple of those key people that you've been spending time with. Yeah, on that base absolutely. That, as you say, you're high fiving. You're kind of suffering. Like we we got through that. Yeah. Um, you talk about team team building activities. Like there's nothing kind of connects you than than going then through that when like you're that. literally putting your life in each other's hands. And I think for me, having spent a year with these guys, my my teammates, they were really like brothers to me. They weren't they weren't people I just thought of as colleagues. These guys, we had been through so much together. Um, that, yeah, you, when you spend 12 hours a day driving around um, the Golan Heights where there's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of threats that can happen at any moment, there's landmines, there's all sorts of challenges that you're dealing with, you're dealing with the locals, you're trying to get humanitarian aid out to them, you're, all these different sort of experiences that you have you kind of, and you have funny moments of just ridiculous situations that occur that really bond you deeply to those people and, and yeah, they're like brothers to me. So then, so you're, this is all happening around you. Um, you're, as you say, a couple of days from actually leaving the base yeah. anyway. Was that now on the cards or was that now not? Well, every single day for that week. So uh, they tried to do a team rotation because I'd already been out there for seven days. So the day that the war started, you know, I had run out of clothes. I didn't have any fresh uniforms. It's the middle of summer in Lebanon. So 40 plus degrees every day. You're wearing body armour. Um, constantly. So, you you know, you, you've got your helmet and all your gear on. So, you know, you, you're sweating a lot. But we'd made a decision because of our logistics that um, we couldn't afford to have showers because, you know, we kept the water that we had on base simply for, for drinking and to run the generators. Because if the generators didn't have water, then we would have run out of power would have gone off on the base and we'd have no comms, we'd, you know, everything would mm. fall over. So water was a critical uh, logistics asset that we needed to monitor. So, so showers was the luxury that we just didn't have. So day one, that's done. Um, they wanted every day, we tried to do a rotation to get fresh personnel out to the base to replace me at that base. Um, but each day the, the rotations would, would fall over. By the end of the day, they kept delaying the rotation because of the ferocity of battle that was happening around us. Where Kiam was, was the junction of the three countries of Israel, Lebanon and Syria. And it was the Hezbollah stronghold in southern Lebanon. So there was a lot of activity that was happening in our region. And so each day, due to the danger factors, it just kept that rotation kept falling over. And that was a hard thing for me to manage mentally as well, because um, when it fell over, I would still be at the base with my team. And those guys weren't leaving. They weren't due to be rotated for many, many days. So I had to kind of manage that emotion of not showing sort of any kind of any kind of emotion about whether I stayed or left the base in that rotation. And and so it was all this sort of building up to be ready to get 
off the base, be ready to jump in these vehicles and knowing that I would be put in a very dangerous situation of having to command a convoy through that war zone. That was far more dangerous than staying at a base that had a bunker and where you shouldn't be targeted. So kind of mentally preparing myself for this big challenge of being in a convoy with armoured vehicles and 16 Indian and Ghanaian soldiers and then having that kind of on again, off again, whether that would actually happen, um, was also trying to manage my energy around that my mindset in many ways. Mm. So eventually that did happen. Um, my Austrian teammate, Hans Peter, so I'd spent two weeks at the base by now. Uh, he did manage to just somehow in a miracle, he got out to that base. He'd had a number of near misses to get there. And then I was just thrust into the biggest leadership challenge of my life of commanding this convoy through the war zone. It was my job to get us from Kiam to the headquarters that was in Tier, and that was over on the coastline. How far are we talking? How far well, it would normally take you a couple of hours to complete that drive. Um, the roads in Lebanon you don't go particularly fast on, so a distance-wise was, you know, approximately um, probably 40 kilometres maybe. Yeah. And it was, a you know, a two-hour drive that took two days. Unfortunately, all the fighting that was happening in southern Lebanon, at the same time Israel commenced their ground invasion into southern Lebanon. So... Um, all the roads that I'd been assigned to take were being bombed or used by the Israelis. And so um, it was a very difficult process where we came under attack. We had near misses from both the Hezbollah and Israel during that two days. And the only way I got us through that convoy was that I learned a bit of Arabic and was able to speak with a Lebanese police officer uh, because there's no GPS in these particular UN vehicles. Another thing that's sort of a luxury from the Australian Defence Force scenario, most of us, you know, in our in our vehicles, civilian vehicles we have in Australia, most of us have GPS. Mm. Um, unfortunately, in Lebanon, these vehicles didn't have GPS. Uh, the UN maps were only had roads that they'd, they'd used previously. So um, most of those roads that I was now forced to try just weren't even marked on the map. And so trying to navigate through a war zone, 16 lives in my hands, having to make decisions constantly to try and keep us alive, the pressures of that two-day transit were enormous. But you kind of, as a leader, I learned how to manage those emotions, kind of put those emotions aside and just continue making decisions, being in a mindset where you can keep making decisions, even just break it down to small decisions to keep your momentum moving forward. I found was really important when we're faced with those big decisions in her life. Most often a decision is better than no decision. Like I think the worst scenario is when you become immobilised with fear in those moments and become incapable of making a decision. So just trying to keep moving forward. And I imagine, as you say, 16 sets of eyes looking at you going, what are we doing? Where are we going? Yeah. It's kind of then, yeah, as you say, I really love that, that actually you know, making no decision is worse than like making the wrong decision or not making yeah. a decision at all. Was there anything that kind of helped you with that decision making aside from, you know, obviously previous experiences where you've been thrown in the deep end and, and kind of obviously a lot of that kind of leadership came to the forefront as well. But in those the moments, were there moments of kind of calm or was it like kind of panic stricken decision making? Um, I think I was calm the whole period. And I think in many ways, being a leader sometimes in those environments is an advantage. For me, I found that my biggest fear was never being injured or killed myself was actually that if I had made a decision that led to the deaths or injury of one of my soldiers, that was my biggest fear uh, in my career and particularly as a leader. And I think when you have that responsibility as a leader, that burden of responsibility that gets placed upon you, 
um, in many ways I was able to just kind of separate those emotions and know that this isn't just about me and I didn't have that luxury to think about myself or what was happening for me. It was the focus was on my team and that I needed to keep making decisions so that I could keep my team as safe as possible. And and knowing that that I didn't have the luxury of time in this environment, I had split-second decisions and that and that at least if I made a decision, hopefully I might be able to course correct if it was a wrong decision. So long as you've got that momentum going forward in your mindset, um, I think you're able to just kind of test and adjust and get back on track and, and get back on the right path if that was a wrong decision. Um, I think just backing yourself, just being able to say, I can only do the best I can. I'm going to use all the skill sets I've got and I just have to try and give it a go, do my best. Yeah. Um, and, and get through this environment and hopefully come out the other side and we'll, we'll fix up whatever we need to at the other side. Yeah, so you're going through, you're making calls, you're navigating roads that you didn't even know were there. <laughs> you're trying yeah. to find your way through. You've got yeah. um, making those decisions as you go. What happened next? Yeah, so I'd been told that we're, an Israeli fighter jet attack was inbound, that the road that we're on was going to be targeted during those bombing runs. And, in fact, I was told, this is by the my UN headquarters, that... Uh, I should expect to see bombs explode around me at any given moment. So things had kind of deteriorated. We were in a situation. But by now I was uh, on the northern outskirts of Tier. I was sort of half an hour from headquarters. So I was having to make some decisions about what we did. And they were solely my responsibility, those decisions. The advice I'd got from the two UN headquarters operating in Lebanon was that one was to return to Kiam and the other was to push on for Tier. And they were my only two options at the time. So conflicting advice wasn't very helpful. <laughs> which just left me then as that leader to make that decision, make that call. And I had weighed up all my options. I guess in a split second I'd gone through all of those those issues that we, you know, in, when we have a look at, at decision-making and we've got more time and we analyse the pros and cons and all of those things, you know, in a split second I'd made, gone through all of that, made a decision and tear was by far the better option, even though I was going into the face of a fighter jet attack. And that was, you know, fully my call to do that rather than return to Kiam. To Ki but in that transit, uh, my driver was doing some evasive manoeuvring. There's no seatbelts in these particular UN vehicles. I was on the radio, didn't foresee all of this was happening around me and I was actually thrown into the bulletproof windscreen of my armoured vehicle, which broke my back in five places. Uh, there were vertebrae that were, were crushed, what they call wedge fractures, where they crushed on one side, um, fractured vertebrae, a ruptured diaphragm, all those internal injuries... But I still had a situation where those injuries, as painful as they were, I had bigger issues on my hands. I had to try and get the convoy into headquarters as quick as I could. And we did get in uh, about 20 minutes later to then find out that all of the UN medical evacuation process had failed. And at that stage, I didn't know the extent of my injuries. I just knew that I was in a lot of pain. Adrenaline got me out of the vehicles. I was able to get in, but I then spent the next... So you're still walking? Yeah, so I was able to uh -huh. walk. Yeah. Um, yeah, adrenaline's an amazing adrenaline. drug. <laughs> if, we could, if we could bottle that, amazing. we'd be wealthy, Ali. Yeah. But um, got into the headquarters and then I spent two days on a tiled floor, no morphine, while the UN's just kind of scrambling, just trying to get me to a hospital for medical treatment. And... Uh, and we're still under attack. We're still getting bombed where we were. There was a lot of a lot of issues that were still happening in the UN. And still as a leader, having to keep making decisions, keep in, 
giving information back to the headquarters of what, you know, all the roads that I've been through. I just wanted to make sure I protected other UN lives too. So you're still having to function, even though you've been physically injured yourself, you're still having to do things. And uh, eventually I was put on a boat and it was a 20-hour boat ride with a 1,000 Lebanese civilian refugees across the Mediterranean Sea to Cyprus to get to a hospital. And that was a difficult journey. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. It was you, a painful. Every second. But and... thankfully there was a doctor on board that ship who had morphine, so, you know, I finally <laughs> got pain relief. And and, and on a positive, I'd, I'd reunited with my, my boyfriend, Clint, who's now my husband, and he's a marketing guy. <laughs> At the time, he was heading up the cat food brand Whiskers. So <laughs> <laughs> He's well prepared for this, right? <laughs> That's right. You know, it's just part of my testing process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my boyfriends of, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, the whole war was a bit outside of his comfort zone. I, I'd promised mm. him this this holiday in Egypt we were supposed to go to the next day after the war had started. And so, but thankfully, you know, just having that support, having someone with me during that transit was incredible. And a whole lot of UN processes had failed. Um, I'd been dropped out of the ambulance in the stretcher. I'd been abandoned when we got to Cyprus. The UN doctor shot through and we were taken to the wrong hospital. The UN had completely lost me in their systems. And the Australian Defence Force had lost me. And so there was this whole uh, isolation and not knowing what was happening and being in an incapacitated state. Thank God Clint was with me and he was able to go and get help and eventually reconnected with the Australian Federal Police that were operating out of Cyprus um, and Australian Defence Force that had actually um, had been sent over to help evacuate Australian foreign nationals out of, of Lebanon. So we eventually, you know, got through all of that. But, you know, that split second in my life of hitting that windscreen, everything in my life changed. You know, I... I lost so many things. Everything that I'd worked so hard for, those injuries ended up ending my career. That when I eventually got back to Australia, it took took 15 days to get back to Australia to commence the treatment for those spinal injuries. And and it was quickly recognised that those injuries would, would end my career. And so having spent my life from 17 years of age for 15 years serving in the military, all of that was gone and I had no say in that decision. In this whole process, though, uh, the base I'd left, Kiam, was targeted in an airstrike. Uh, an Israeli fighter jet fired a 1,000-pound aerial bomb. It was a bunker bust. It was a direct hit on the bunker of Kiam where my unarmed teammates were taking shelter. And, you know, all four of those guys were killed in an instant, including the Austrian who'd replaced me at the base just a couple of days prior. And... Oh, that whole moment, Ali, it was um, finding out of that incident. I was now in Cyprus and I found out through the media from CNN by the news. So lying in a hospital bed, immobilised in pain, not knowing what's happening to me because there's this whole chaos with the UN system and just seeing these images of what was left of Kiam, um I don't think it really resonated in my mind as real events. It was just, this is the news. I couldn't fully comprehend that my four teammates who are brothers, you know, that they've lost their lives in this. And there was that sliding door moment of my life that it was only that I had chosen to go to Tier, push on for the headquarters rather than going back to Kiam, that I wasn't also. And if I hadn't have been injured, I would have been back at that base and would have died alongside my teammates. Mm. 
Were there, I guess, different, I can only imagine there are a whole range of different thoughts going through your head. Like what were some of those kind of conversations and everything from you saying, I don't even know if that's even real. Um, yeah. Because often we, you know, we see, and even now, right, we see devastating things on the news, but there's there's constantly a sense of that's somewhere else, it's someone else. And I'm sure we have empathy and understanding, but it's not. And we go back to washing the dishes, right? Like yeah, we go back to whatever right. yeah. we've got to do in that moment. So yeah. what were some of those things that were going around? I think for me, there? I mean, it just felt surreal. It just did not feel like a real event. And part of that was compounded by the fact that none of my UN commanders, not even my Australian commander, none of them ever thought to contact me. And so I never had that my own leaders talk to me about my team's just been killed on the battlefield. And so it's this real disconnect. Um, and I guess now I'm, and when I'm talking with, with clients and in my speaking events, um, one of the things I really share is that the importance of communicating as a leader in those crisis situations, that it's more important than ever to talk to your people when you're going through those crisis events. You know, we, we kind of tend to get focused on the operational aspects and, of course, that's important, but it's the people that are the most important thing at that moment and we need to take the time during the crisis and talk with them. And for me, that was just such an isolating, compounding isolation feeling that I was now separated from the rest of the UN force in Lebanon. I'm now in Cyprus in a hospital on my own. No one knows where I, where I am there. And... And I haven't got the rest of my team around me. I haven't got any of that bonding to sort of grieve with. I'm isolated. And the fact that none of my leaders ever contacted me, um, it, it resulted in me spending years really coming to terms with the deaths of my teammates as a real event. Um, and I think that was, a, you know, some learning that is applicable across all industries that you can take that, you know, as leaders, it's so vitally important to communicate. Yeah, I can so, only imagine that um, there's something about... Like if this was real, someone would have come and spoken to me. Yeah, and if that's, that's not right. happening, then, then maybe it's not or maybe there's something else. Or maybe this is a big misunderstanding. Yeah. Maybe this is just some other base that's been hit or, you know, exactly that well, why hasn't someone spoken to me? This is my team that's, that's, um, that have all lost their lives in this war, you know, in, this, in the service of peace. And so, so that was um, a really difficult thing to then come back to Australia and as I was saying in that, that moment, really I look back in a split second during this war, you know, I lost, I lost my career, I lost teammates or like brothers and I, I was suffering the survival guilt at a really deep level um, to the extent that I truly resented that I was still alive because my teammates all had children and, and I felt, you know, it was just really unfair. I had oh, I'd survived so many near misses yet these guys... You know, they'd failed to make it home to their family. There were kids out there that weren't having their dad to grow up with. And I felt it was really unfair that I was single, had no dependents at that stage and wished I could have replaced the guys, even one of them. Um, and I felt that very deeply and very heavy on me, this, this burden and the unfairness that I had survived. That guilt sort of escalated to the point that I resented my life from then on. And it was very hard to work through that, of that resentment of why I'm still here and to, you know I think to move forward to try and find new purpose in life if you actually resent your being it's it's very hard to find new roles where you can add purpose be valued and give back if you've got that deep grief that's happening with you. Mm. Can, how did that roll out for you like did that then have an impact on 
the work that you did or putting your hand up for things like yeah what what kind of impact did that that internal struggle have on what was happening in your life? I think it impacted everything in my life. I came back and I you know I was being discharged and in that process I was I was having to fight the government just for health cover. There was um, a lot of failures between the the Australian Defence Force and Department of Veterans Affairs that I've gone on to champion change for for younger veterans and particularly for female veterans. It was just things in place that just wasn't supporting our contemporary young veterans. Um, I eventually was awarded a gold card for my injuries, a, a veterans gold card. But then I found out later that there was things that just didn't cover female veterans. So I'm the first woman to ever have a baby on the gold card. And the gold card's really structured for an 80-year-old male World War II veteran. I just don't fit the box right. <laughs> of a veteran. Obstetrician? <laughs> what? That's right. you can... Never had this before. Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Veterans have never asked to have babies before. And so there was all just these challenges just kept being thrown at me and I just had all of these battles to go on, you know, fighting the government for war service recognition and health cover and all of these things on top of everything that I'd lost. And I think the biggest problem for me was that I'd... I'd lost my own self of identity. Up until that point of being injured, I think I viewed myself, Matina Jewell was so wrapped up in my physical capabilities that I could match it with the guys. You know, I was a Navy diver. I did all these, I could physically do these things. And when I lost my physical ability, I think, you know, initially I was told that I'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Um, I wore a spinal brace for a year and thankfully I'm upright, I'm walking. But I'll never be able to do those things that I had done previously. You know, all the sporting um, achievements and those things, you know, I'll never be able to run again. All of those things, I, I actually had to grieve the loss of each one of those things. And there's just so many layers of grief of actually trying to identify who is Matina Jewell if she's not a Navy diver, if she's not an amphibious warfare commander, if she's not an Army major. I think all of those things that we tend to define ourselves by, our title, our job, Um, that's all the things that I had connected myself with. And so I lost myself in that whole struggle. And it was a dark period of time. It went on for years, really dark, depressive days. And I think the biggest problem with all of that was that I'd become severely depressed. And for me, depression is, it's a difficult thing because you become so self-absorbed and focused on what's happening to you. You become a bit selfish in a way. And, and you can't see what's happening around you and the hurt that you're actually causing other people. So that went on for a long time. The battles with the government went on for years. I had to uh, employ a lawyer to take on, to get the health cover and the things that I needed and then go on to champion and fix a number of those processes years to come. But a very difficult period where I was very lost. And for me, it was finding that new sense of purpose. And it was a brief moment where I was able to stop seeing what I was doing what the focus on myself and actually see what the impact was happening around the people that I loved. And there was this particular day, you know, I got into this pattern of where every day I'd end up fetal position on the shower floor, um, bawling my eyes out, having a woe is me moment going, why has all of this happened in my life? Like I had this whole amazing career. I had so much going for me and now all that's gone and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And it was about finding a new purpose And that was very small to start with. And I think it's all about just taking small steps. And so at that moment, I made a decision that the next morning I would get up and iron Clint a business shirt before he went off to work. And I think that small act, and that became my entire reason for being was to iron a shirt each day. That was all I had to do. But that was a pretty big ask, you know. 
getting out of bed each day when you're in a spinal brace was, was a mm. huge achievement in itself yeah. and it was very painful to do that but it, it forced me to at least get up, do something and that small act, you know, I'd gone from that privilege of commanding soldiers and operations overseas to now ironing a shirt was the biggest challenge that I had and it was a... Um, and I think it was still a challenge. Like, it was I think a challenge. Not, not, um, it was a difficult thing. Yeah, yeah. It was a painful thing. It was a hard thing. And at the end of it, I did feel a sense of achievement that I had at least ironed a shirt and it was actually something that helped somebody else. And and that's kind of been my advice to, uh, to people going through difficult times and to leaders trying to build resilience in people is that for me that turnaround the single most important thing was finding a new sense of purpose. And that was a really small thing that, you know, to iron a shirt, whatever it might be, just hang on to something tangible that will help you get through one day after another day and just gradually build on that. And and if it can help others, it kind of has a double positive effect, I found. Um, and I think, in, you know, in our core as humans, we want to help each other. That's part of our, we're social beings. It's part of our fabric. Yeah, it's one of those things that gives back to us. Yeah. Ironically, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It makes you feel good. Well, for me, it makes me feel far more better about myself if I've done something for someone else rather than just for myself. Like yeah. it's, you know, it is. It's a funny, a funny thing. So interesting. And I guess I want to kind of scratch a little bit more into grief because I think grief is such a something we don't often talk about. It's something that, um, and yet it's something we all experience for a whole range of different mm. um reasons and and different events in our lives and I think sometimes it's being aware of the things that we're grieving that may not be the obvious things and so it's really it would have been very understandable to go grief for the loss of your mates the loss of your colleagues grief for um you know the the injuries that that had happened grief for um the loss of that career, but we don't, we don't often give voice to the grief of identity, yeah. that grief of um, now, you know, what could have been in my career. Like you were probably set up for a lifetime in yeah. the military um, and where else you could have been deployed, what other, um, what other heights you could have gone to, like the what could have been. I think we often don't talk about that side of grief. Was that part of your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely was. You know, I was on the fast track to be the first, you know, um, female battalion commander to, to, you know, logistics. Um, All of the things I'd had, the experiences I had had positioned me really well. I had great mentors and role models in the military. Um, I had this fantastic, I had a very blessed career. I'd been given extraordinary opportunities and the support to actually achieve in those environments. And so it was a career that I loved. I was passionate about. I'd worked damn hard. I really loved the people that I worked with, the teams, the environments, the challenges. And I had this huge future ahead of me that in a split second was gone. And I think the difficult part of that was that I had no say in that decision. So that was gone without any choice on my behalf. And that's right, I really had to sort of let go, grieve that, acknowledge that that was, that was a thing, it was a part of my life. And and then there's all this uncertainty, unknown what what can I be if I'm not that? Because that's what I've attached myself to and that's who I believe I am. And now now I'm not even that. I'm a nothing. <laughs> I don't know what I am now. Who is Martina Jewell? I don't know. And finding that and finding yourself and finding a new self, a new purpose of what you're going to be and what where life takes you. And I think 
for me, it was a learning of letting go. I was fiercely independent and I had been from a very young age and I now see it in my, my two daughters. They're dependent, <laughs> so fiercely independent that, um, you know, at two, I'm like, come on, surely I get a little bit more time That's as a right. mum. <laughs> right. You can be that at 22, but, but at two, like can two. we just? <laughs> <laughs> surely I've got a little bit more to do mm. as a mother. <laughs> But, you know, I had had that. And so being in a situation where I was now in a spinal brace, I was reliant on people to bath me, to, to put me in a wheelchair, to help me get to places, to, to get me in a pool with a physio and work. And, you know, I think I had to learn to let go of my fierce independence and actually allow others in to help me. And I think also one of the things I took away of learning was I had up until injury, there's sort of like this point in my life, that pivotal point in my life that the prior to injury and then after injury, the versions of Maddie are very different. And if I look at prior to injury, you know, I was a very disciplined, hardworking person that, you know, very structured. I was an army officer. I had a master's in project management. Uh, everything in my life happened because I had planned it to be that way. It was so, so structured. So five, 10, 15 year goals, the milestones to each, each of those events and I think looking back, I, I probably missed a lot of opportunities in my life because I was so blinkered on where I was heading that I just didn't even see or didn't let any other opportunities come into my sphere. And after injury, it's kind of the pendulum swung all the other way to the opposite e- extreme of that, of that now it's like it's like my whole life was like a deck of cards that just got thrown in the air. I'm now on this ride that I'm just hanging on. I don't know where I'm heading but I've just got to have that courage to say, it's going to look after me. I'm going to go to where I'm supposed to be. I'm going to find a new purpose. I'm going to find value in my life. And I think that's giving back and and sharing my experiences to others. But ever since being injured, it's been this roller coaster that I'm holding on and doing roles that I never, ever imagined that I would do. Ending up as an advisor to the Prime Minister on the um, Prime Minister's Advisory Council, affecting change that will help veterans, um, you know, I ended up being able to speak with Ban Ki-moon, the, the Secretary-General um, in charge of the United Nations at the time, to actually talk about where they needed to learn and implement change after Lebanon, where all the failings of the UN was. You know, I would never have imagined doing roles like that of actually getting to voice um, my experiences for positive change for others, um, being able to touch people's lives. So it's sort of at this, you know, this pivotal point in my life where life changed dramatically for me that now I'm very open to opportunities. But it takes courage and it takes self-belief to actually sit in those places, accept the opportunities or let them go if they're not for you at the right time and just have faith that, you know, you'll end up where you're supposed to be. And does that some of that surprise you? I guess the organised, structured planning kind of part <laughs> of you going, actually, these opportunities have come about because of letting go, That's not right. because of planning. And they still require work and obviously you still it's not um, dismissing the work, but... Yeah, it's not sitting back and saying, oh, I'm just going to have a sandwich the while universe. the universe is just going <laughs> to provide right. to me. Print a brass and knock on my door and then we'll chat. And then, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. You still have to work hard, but it's just having a different mindset of where you're actually open to say, I'm, I'm prepared to explore who knows where my life might take me and what an amazing journey and what an amazing ability to be able to go, it's magical, who knows? I don't have to drive all of this. I've just got to be open to it and then work hard. And is then that liberating? It is liberating. And I think I, I think I really needed to learn that lesson before having children because <laughs> if I was still in that mindset of wanting to control everything, of wanting to actually structure my day, my children would be sending me insane at this point in time. <laughs> I would be, <laughs> I'd be going, oh, my God, they're uncontrollable. Who knows? Yeah. And I think that 
that has been a blessing in itself of being able to be a far better mum to my girls, to be able to say, all right, this is what I wanted to do today, but that's not working. So let's just be a bit more flexible. Yeah, around new that. down on the beach if that's what's that's required right. for if our two-year-olds. We're going to chase seagulls today. <laughs> <laughs> naked. The children are naked, not me. No, you. Yeah, I'm fully clothed. Just clarify that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think part of yeah that letting go, um, and you know, there's still lots of dreams and aspirations that I'm sure that you have about what else, but but seeing that world as it as it comes, your world is still really busy, as you say, not not just with them um, with two beautiful kids, but um, your career, the conversations, uh, um, ambassador roles that you have. How do you still keep your identity? even amongst the busy now, which is very different to what it's been mm. in the past. What, do you have any kind of practical, even non-negotiable things that you do in your week that reminds you to come back to, to you? Yeah, and that's, and that's a really powerful question, Ali, and, it's, and it's, it's one of the things I still struggle with. I'm very much, I guess it's part of my training and my, my personality, I'm very much focused on the team and that might be my family or others or clients or work, or, you know, um, finding time for myself is still something I find very difficult to actually put myself first, but it's something that I've learnt that I need to, to be the best version of myself for my children, for my family, etc. Um, I need to actually focus on myself and it's not being selfish, it's actually doing the best for them. And so there's things that I, I try and put in place you know, every on a daily basis or weekly of, of taking time out just for me and not feeling guilty about that. And previously I did feel guilty. I felt, no, I should be using this time for others. But um, it is really important, you know, that, that saying to look after yourself first before you can look after others. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's small things I do. I'm, I'm very fortunate to live near the beach, so the beach is a very cathartic place for me to actually just sit, feel grounded, take my shoes off, sit in the sand, walk through the water and just have a moment to to connect with nature, connect with the world and just um, and even have time to think, think about what I want to do, what I want to explore, all the opportunities that are out there. It's, you know, it's quite, it's, it's exciting when you, when you let go and think I'm just open. It's, you know, it's exciting because you never know what might just be around the corner. Yeah, and being open yeah. to those, yeah, yeah. Just like possibilities. Yeah. You've had an incredible story. Do you have any glimmers of, um, and I guess this might even sound as a counterpoint to what we've just said in terms of letting opportunity, but do you have any glimmers of what the, the next story might involve? Yeah, I don't know. I feel a, a big part of me at the moment is about honouring the service and sacrifice of my teammates. I think for... For many, um, sharing my experiences, I, I think for many Australians, just what happens on the other side of the world is so foreign to many of us that we just can't actually really put ourselves in that situation of really imagining what it would be like if war broke out today. And if you were in a situation where you have to make a decision about life and death for yourself and your children and um, that's just a foreign concept for so many people. And I think by sharing my experiences you know, it gives perspective for people. I think we spend so much time and lose so much energy um, focusing on our first world problems of things that really at the end of the day don't matter and we get so caught up in them and so upset by the things that didn't go to plan that, you know, actually sometimes we need that perspective to step back and say, well, actually, we are so fortunate to live in this country. The fact that we we take our day-to-day security in Australia for granted and there are many countries around the world that that is just not an option. That's not, That's a very foreign concept for them. So... 
Um, I still, I think I'll always want to um, honour my teammates and their experience, their loss and, uh, and the service that they've provided, you know, in the name of peace. And who knows, there's so many different avenues, so many things I want to explore. Um, I don't know, there's lots of things in the process, in the wins and, um, you know, I'm working on all sorts of different projects at the moment and uh, it's exciting to see where things will be in five years' time, what life will look like for me. But um, I'm open to however that takes shape um, and it's a good place to have got to, I think. Yeah, exciting what's coming around the corner. Um, I just want to touch on fear because fear is one of those really interesting kind of emotions that, um, you know, I think all of us have had for a whole range of different reasons and, and we've unpacked some stories that end by any any stretch of the imagination we go, they're pretty freaking scary situations <laughs> to, be, to be in. Um, now in the point of your life, like how does, how does fear show up and how do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I use fear to drive me. I think I found that fear, it's a natural, normal response when we're challenged, when we're in environments where we're being pushed outside our comfort zone we're going through huge change, it's a normal response for us to feel that fear. And I think it's about not trying to fight it. I think we spend so much wasted energy trying to suppress the fear and say, oh, I'm not afraid, I'm going to jump in. And But I think if we can actually just acknowledge it and sit with that emotion, acknowledge that's normal, but go ahead and do it anyway. Find that courage to say, I'm going to have a crack at this remove the pressures of success and failure, just actually just say, I'm just going to have a go, regardless of the outcome, I'm going to learn something extraordinary out of this situation and try and make fear just a normal response to that environment. I think if you can try and allow that just to be, and, you know, I guess from my experience, I can draw back on experiences where I faced fear and had to, you know, war zones, um, I was tasked to learn to fast rope out of helicopters where there's no safety apparatus, there's no repelling harness. And this was something... As a female officer, I was never expected to do in my career because it was in the army, only our special forces men were allowed to do that particular skill. So it was something that came out of left field. It was while we were in operations in the Middle East that waivers were signed off to allow me to do this. And I'm terrified of heights. (laughs) (laughs) And so having to be a leader in those environments, overcoming my own very real fear of jumping out of a perfectly safe helicopter down a rope, um, that taught me so many things. And I'm still afraid of heights. It's not like I've conquered that fear of heights. I've still got it, but I know that I can push myself through those environments and have a positive result at the other end. So I like fear. I kind of think it's a, it's a really, it's a powerful emotion that can allow you to achieve far beyond what your expectations were, or, you know, where, where you limited yourself, you can shoot way further success than what you ever thought was possible with that fear driving you. I love it. It's almost becoming the friend yeah. Oh, and it's that sign of when it shows up that actually we're doing something yeah, kind we're doing of different. Something. <laughs> yeah, this this must be something big. This is yeah. you know this is a great opportunity. Embrace it, and as you say, you befriend befriend the fear, and you might you know be surprised where it can catapult you into incredible opportunities. Yeah, and it doesn't have to stop you. I feel like we could keep talking, <laughs> but to come full circle, the name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. When I um, say that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Hmm. Look, a standout life for me, I think it's, it's about 
reaching the potential of your life. And for every person, that's going to be a different theme. But allowing yourself to reach the potential of whatever it is in your life that's your purpose of where you want to get to. And that takes courage to push through, to pick yourself up after you've failed at something, to get back on the horse and and reach the full potential of whatever your life is, you know, has got in store for you. But I think there's another part to it too that I, I think it's actually helping others achieve their standout life as well, that it's not just about us. We're, you know, we're individuals, but as a species, we're, you know, we're a community, we're, we're social creatures, and I think being standout is also helping others stand up. And uh, that's, that's for me a standout life is succeeding yourself but enabling others and empowering them to live the best life that they can too. Beautiful. Maddie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ali. It's been a great pleasure. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.